Today I welcome Emma McKendrick, headmistress at Downhouse School in the UK. In this episode, I discuss the evolution of boarding schools over the past three decades, instilling a global outlook to education, and why girls-only education is still important today. You've been headmistress now at Downhouse for 25 years. I mean, it's a huge tenure that you don't often see now in any school around the world that it seems to be quite a shorter sort of tenure that heads have. Congratulations, firstly, on an incredible milestone. During this time, you must have seen an enormous amount of change. We've been through the technology revolution. Boarding must have changed as well since you became headmistress. How have you adapted during this period? One of the key things is probably with better communication is that we are all much better at communicating. So it's very much more a an active partnership with parents and working together with families in a way that perhaps 25 years ago, it wasn't quite so, so close a relationship. And I think that's to the good of the young people and the children that we live and learn and work and support the young people together. They're much more family-orientated places. I think boarding schools now too, with families running boarding houses, you know, which is lovely to see. So I think in terms of technology and so on, it is a challenge, but actually it's just the fundamental sort of role of valuing young people, making them feel valued. There may be different, you know, headwinds that you have to deal with, but actually the aim is still the same. And it's just working, as they addressing the challenges as they come along and doing it collectively. Boarding 25 years plus ago, police had more of a bad rap. It had lots of misperceptions. Maybe modern parents now have different expectations when it comes to boarding. Is there still a place for boarding schools in the education system? I would say to you even more so, actually, than perhaps previously in the sense that you learn some amazing things through boarding. And they are now very much more, you know, second homes. That's what we're trying to create, a place where you build relationships. And I think young people who've been through boarding are very, very skilled at building those relationships. They're very skilled when they go out into later life, at having the confidence to work with anyone, go anywhere in the world because they've learned to live with people. They've learned to work through, you know, difficulties. They've learned to work and live with somebody who's very tidy and they're not. And, you know, small things like that, which may seem insignificant, but actually they're really important for learning how to be tolerant and forgiving and work towards a common goal. So I think boarding gives our young people tremendous skills, actually. I'd also say as a parent of four kids, and I've seen my eldest three go through those teenage years, two girls, one boy at this moment, my youngest boys is just 11. I have noticed that real benefit the boarding brings when it comes to, you know, it's a difficult time for a young person in their early teens as they're developing independence, social pressures with their peers, their sort of what does love and belonging mean, trying to test these boundaries. And it, it does become quite difficult also for parents because the last people they want to talk to or they want to listen to is their parents. All they feel is that we're nagging them on all these things. There's a real benefit there because you get kids and actually putting them in an environment with other students their age, they actually just want to be with themselves and their peers. So I really see this as a benefit. How have you kind of juggled with the changes with technology and what the girls of today are wanting to have access to beyond their physical relationships? It is a pressure for them, but I think one of the 
you know, I hope one of the best bits too about boarding is they are phenomenally busy in the most constructive way. So they are playing a lot of games, they are doing music, they are doing a lot of drama. When they're in the boarding house common room together, they are chatting together. You know, when they're at mealtimes, they're at mealtimes, there aren't mobile phones in the dining room, they are actually having a conversation and sitting down. So in a sense, you squeeze it out a little bit (laughs) through just their daily life. We talk about it a lot. We are able to say to them, look, you know, perhaps in a way that's easier than at home, we're not going to have mobile phones in the evening at nighttime. They're all going to be taken in. You know, you don't need your mobile phones during the day. So there are places where we can make school a bit more of a sanctuary. But being realistic about it, there's also you've got to teach them how to manage that and all the messaging and things that come in. So there's an education piece, there's a way the older students can help the younger students to manage it and share their thoughts and expertise. We can draw on, I suppose, experts and advice as well, and other young people to come in and talk to the students outside the school sort of sphere as well as inside it. So there's a lot of guidance in there, there's a lot of education, and there's a lot of, look, there are lots of other things we want to do. And it's difficult managing those two almost like conflicting forces. The girls want to be very social and they have these devices which, you know, they connect with their friends. And most of the time it is all social, right? They're just being normal teenagers. And then you've got the other side of it, which is we want to make sure they have the discipline to be able to turn it off because they've got to live with these things. So we can't just say you can't have these devices. Part of it is going, you are going to go out into the workplace and you're going to have one of these things permanently in your bag, permanently in your pockets, permanently around you. We've got to teach them those skills to go, I know it's a distraction. You've got to learn to go, I can see here and I'll use it when I want it to be useful. But there's other times that I don't want to be sucked into the dopamine hit. How do you balance that? I think it's also about not all social media, not all devices. It's not all bad. I think there is a point here too at sort of saying that these are the really positive ways in which you can use your device and your social media and build your profile in a really constructive and positive way. Because I think it's not binary, the use of devices and social media. So it's helping them to see where they can be really useful to them, what a healthy relationship with my device looks like, how I build that up. Probably we all find it difficult recognizing with them that it is difficult sometimes to put it down. But how do we do that? You know, working with them together on an individual basis sometimes, as well as, you know, there's generic advice. But there is also some things that tutors can do with them that house staff will be doing at different ages and stages to talk through essentially how do I build a healthy relationship with social media, with my device, and with the profile I want to do? And how am I? It's about me being in control of it rather than it being in control of me. It's exactly that. They've got to be not told, you know, because they have to learn for themselves. We have to give them a framework to say that, well, this is healthy. This is probably unhealthy. As they mature, you give them the confidence to be able to go, actually, this is unhealthy. And I've seen in my own kids and other through stories of schools where they have realized you can say some things and it can sit in their back of their mind. And eventually they'll hit a wall where they go, yeah, I'm just wasting my life on TikTok. It's so addictive. I just can't help it. I look at one thing and then suddenly it's an hour later and I've wasted now of my life looking at things that aren't important. They've just been addictive. And so I've deleted the app because I needed a detox. And they've come to that own realization themselves. We could have said that to them a year ago, 
we can't, right? Can't preach the action. We've just got to say, look, why don't you consider these things and reframe it? Like, is, is that a really good use of your hour? I've got a question about if you were to look into your, your crystal ball, because you know, you, you're an expert on boarding. Looking 25 years ahead, what do you think the shape of boarding will be like and how different would it be from today? I think or I hope it will be, in a sense, still very much about building communities. So I think there will be a place for boarding. I think there'll be a place for, I suppose, what we would call it's going to be family friendly. It's going to be very much about doing this with parents, probably going to be more flexible as it is now. So there will be a place for, I think, accessing boarding in different ways. You know, so you might want full boarding for some moments, you might want weekly boarding, you might need something a little bit more flexible. So I think the boarding model will need to be adaptable for the future. But I think there'll still be a place for some full boarding as well, actually, and what people learn from that. I think you'll see, and perhaps this is a hope rather than a thing that you'll see groups of schools globally where it is interchangeable, you know, where you've got much more linkage across schools in different countries and building up those sort of global families of school of boarding and perhaps more access to different countries, cultures, mobility that reflects perhaps increased mobility. We'll see. I'm not quite sure how the environmental footprint and travel is going to play out in the future. But, you know, my hope is that you'll see a sort of sort of global communities of boarding growing, boarding schools growing up as well. Lots of dialogue. You know, I really hope that boarding schools can be a beacon for, you know, building those global communities of tolerance and understanding because they are fabulous places and spaces to be able to do that. Probably more a hope than a prediction. But the real ingredients that a boarding school has is that you already are the honeypot where all of this great international community comes anyway. You attract them in to have a safe haven, to be able to be stewarded, to go out to then to have this global outlook to make a difference. So your idea of having a global outlook, they have it innately because they're part of a kind of an international community at your school anyway. But I really like the idea about how do we make it more interchangeable. I think it's a great thing because that's how you get true global outlook. It's not about you know, having lots of people from different nationalities all in one place in the UK, how do we allow them to go off and experience the culture somewhere else? I know that Dan House does have a global outlook with sister schools in France, the Middle East and Saudi Arabia. How has the opening of these schools gone and why did you decide to go down that route? Early days in terms of it's uh, both the um, school in Riyadh and Muscat opened this September. Touchwood really, really well. And I think we can see exciting possibilities. For us, it was about choosing areas where we could run girls' schools and about empowering women's education, because that's a probably not surprisingly, that's a great sort of aim of ours. And I, you know, we can see, I hope, the possibility of learning about the Middle East through first-hand experience as we begin to have pupil exchanges, staff exchanges. We've got some shared classroom at the moment, for example, with our A-level psychology students. So some of those are in Muscat and some are in the UK, and they'll be learning together for part of the course. So we're looking at ways in which we can develop really meaningful links. You know, the same with our school in France, which is a slightly different model, whether the year eight students go out and have a term there. But again, it's, although France is very close, it's culturally, it's very different. And learning that firsthand 
perhaps in time, hoping that the girls from Muscat and Riyadh will be able to get first-hand experience in France, really looking at maximising those opportunities and growing that understanding. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I love the way you've used technology to bring two remote campuses and classes together. Was that always part of the vision pre-pandemic or was the pandemic a catalyst, a testbed to go, sure, we can actually do this. So why don't we look at evolving our model to go, wouldn't it be great if girls from these different campuses in these different locations around, around the world could all have shared lessons? Did it come before and it just became a realization because of COVID or did you kind of come out of it and go, no, this is what we're going to have to do? It started beforehand. We have these sort of linked partner schools around the world and we had started to dabble with having, doing a joint lesson, actually some maths project with a school in California. But if I took what the pandemic did was fast forwarded incredibly to suddenly what was a big event. And we thought, goodness, we've just done this joint lesson. Isn't that fantastic to, this is everyday stuff now. We can do this. We're quite accomplished at doing it. So it made it seem all the more possible, made that vision be realisable a lot quicker. And are you hoping to sort of roll that out to other subjects? And is it with classes that maybe don't have as many students in? Because obviously it's about, again, maximising or optimising teacher availability and talent because, you know, you have these talented teachers and, you know, the ability to inspire more than the girls that are sat in front of me in a classroom that's a pretty powerful reason to open that up to other classes. And will it grow beyond psychology? It will. It will probably grow in terms of our short you know, six-week module. So we might share an elective with the school. The timetable issues and the time difference make the uh, sharing examination classes why we've only, we'll only do a small number of those. But there are lots of other possibilities for the sort of general classes where we hope we can do things together. The term that your lower fourth have, is that just to have a cultural shift and just to learn in another country? Or is there any other kind of project that underpins it that they're trying to deliver at the end of that term? It's got a linguistic aim as well, that they will come back with a better command of French, that they will have a good understanding of the culture, the countryside, and also real piece about personal growth and development as well. Even though it's not massively far away, it is a very different space being outside Toulouse and learning how to live and grow and cope and be taught in French. It is amazing how their confidence grows and suddenly, you know, being able to go out and do an interview in Toulouse with people on the street, they do it and they realise they can do it or they can do it. A little concert we're hoping for the local care home and, you know, all of those things. So there's a piece about personal growth through opportunity and just taking people safely and, and collectively out of their comfort zone and not leaving those opportunities to lead and develop in that way till later, but actually saying they're really capable at that age and more capable than they, they think. I'm really keen to get your thoughts on this. There's always this challenge in the press around education with this balance between skills and like exam or academic rigor or that knowledge piece. 
over 25 years, we're seeing this shift. It was all knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. And then technology came along. We had access to knowledge. And so we need to teach problem solving. Actually, how do I access and get the right information at the right time? How have you adapted to that? And what, what are your thoughts on how do we bring in skills and balance that with the knowledge side? We have actually, I suppose, put a structure around it in that we have eight, we call it the Danhouse DNA, which are eight skills that we look at in terms of collaboration, good communication skills, aspiration, resilience, digital literacy, and so on. And what we look to do is we look at how young people are developing those both in the classroom. So where are they learning to work together effectively, work in a compassionate way? We'd always say compassion is probably a, an approach rather than a skill, isn't it? But actually, that is front and centre. How do I work compassionately, collaboratively with resilience? And tutors will talk that through with them, what opportunities they are, how they would assess themselves against the downhouse DNA. We look at it in the boarding house. What are we focusing on this week? at an individual level and then perhaps collectively. So we try and build those skills through the curriculum, through the pastoral work that we do, and really getting the young people to value those and and do self-assessment as well as the teacher guiding them through those, acquiring those skills, if you like. And they keep a a very good log of them. There's a wonderful um, platform called Unifrog, which we use for Again, from a young age, from age 11, 12, they review what they've done against those skills, keep a log. So I hope they get a sense of achievement and empowerment as they're assessing how much of the DNA they've embedded. I do love the Danhouse DNA. It's great to have some kind of frameworks and pillars and values that you believe in and that you live into, that the girls kind of understand that holds them the fabric together as they go through school. Interesting, you talked sort of about Unifrog and, you know, again, it becomes career focus and a, what course I could do, you know, what job would I get? And, that, and that's a real hard thing for any teenager to grasp. We spend so much time in the education game, we forget about actually what does the world outside there need or want? And actually, do the kids inside the school know actually what jobs are available? Because technology is completely shifted where the jobs probably are. And it doesn't mean that you have to be in a technology kind of role. You're connected in some way, whether it's to gaming, whether it's to technology. I noticed that you have set up the Downhouse Global Academy where it offers online courses. Was a driver because you wanted to make Downhouse education accessible to lots of other people that weren't there? Or was it founded on, on different principles? Again, a little bit along those lines of how do we empower young women across the globe with the richness of education? So deliberately running courses and the, the Global Academy is not about examination courses, GCSEs or A-levels. It's about real enrichment. So learning what, you know, doing a module on perhaps poetry or space or engineering or or all sorts of different things. And we run these as a sort of enrichment program for students, for girls overseas at the moment, particularly focused on the Far East. We hope that will grow. And that's something we've entered into partnership with a, a group in the Far East who, who are also very keen that it's not just about examinations, but that their young people have the opportunity to develop and get a joy of learning outside examinations and also develop those skills that we've been talking about, about debate and collaboration and good analytical skills, problem solving. So into our second year now and seeing what the students have got out of it when you see their presentations at the end of a 
you know, a course. It's fabulous. And can anyone sign up to do it or do you have to be within the downhouse community to get access to this? No, we are going to take it outside, the, the very much outside the downhouse community. So these are other schools in Hong Kong, China, and we're looking at, uh, say, developing that further as well. It's definitely the best approach to education. We don't need to set up new schools necessarily. We need to kind of actually give access to great education to the many. And so opening up some kind of global academy, whether it's online, it doesn't always fill the gap for me when it comes to replacing what in-person teaching does. At least we can bridge the gap because you know, not every teacher is, is inspiring. But imagine bottling up those ones who can get every child enthused about a subject that they may not be enthused about. And then we've got to almost have, like have a tutor model where we go, okay, now we need to support that student in understanding it and actually figuring out it. But it's that inspiration piece. So are all your teachers, is that part of professional development? Do you kind of train them all up and can they all have, a, have an opportunity to contribute to this Downhouse Academy or is it quite narrow at the moment? We do ask for volunteers or people who are particularly interested in it. So we've got a variety of teachers in, involved in it. We've got some teachers who have all had downhouse training. They may have finished with us, but they are doing some work. You know, may have taken early retirement or whatever, and they they love doing this sort of work. And it's a wonderful way of capitalising on that expertise. So the key for us is that they've got teachers have got the downhouse spark and enthusiasm to run it, and really can love and make the most of online teaching because it is a you know it, it is another skill. So. We've got a real range of, of staff doing it. And you know, anybody who wants to put their hat in the ring and say, I'd be interested, the head of our global academy won't, won't let them run too far. Finally, I want to talk about single-sex education because you know, this is something that's always sort of challenged and bandied around the press about, you know, sh- should we be segregating? Are girls taught better? You've obviously been in a, in a girls-only school for 25 years, so your case is pretty clear that you believe that there's still a strong, strong case to have a girls-only education. Do you think that's always going to be the case or do you think it's more relevant now or will it become even more important as we move on? I, not surprisingly, feel it is extraordinarily relevant and possibly even more so. For me, it is all about giving young women confidence and a sense of self-worth and self-belief. Being able to do that in an environment where they see young women leading ahead of them. They see different types of leadership. They can see quiet leadership. They can see alumni who've succeeded in engineering, in entrepreneurship, in being a pilot, being a, you know, wanting to be an astronaut, whatever it is. It opens their eyes to all the possibilities for what young women can do through the alumni network, through the sixth form, opens their eyes to different styles of leadership. And above all, it allows them to be themselves. We can grow an inner confidence. They don't have to be anybody for anybody else. They're not a girl. They're just a person. So it isn't girls and boys. They're just the person they are. They can develop as that person. They don't have to appear a particular way. They can question themselves. They can have bad days and grow through that. And they will build unbelievably strong friendships. It is about culture that empowers them. I hope that gives them every opportunity that gets away from that stereotype. Often boys are brought up to be brave and confident and girls are brought up to be good. 
and compliant and actually it's not that I don't of course I want them to be good <laughs> um, but I also want them to be brave and courageous and to have the confidence that they have something very special to give in the world outside. Completely agree being the father of two girls and two boys so I kind of I get to see both sides. Finally, what's your favourite part about the job you do and working in a girls' school? Any interaction with the students, doesn't matter what stage of the day, what stage of the term, walking around the site is still the best bit. It must be. And again, I visit hundreds of schools a year around the world. It is, they're such great places. You want to bottle it up and unlock the magic of your school kind of one story at a time. And I can see it. I can see why people get into teaching. And want to be part of a great community because it's there's something quite phenomenal about seeing these young, these young women or these young men actually grow and develop and go out into the world and go, wow, what incredible young people they are. They are, they are the future. Anything we can do to facilitate their growth, to be the best people they can be, they're going to change the world. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.